0: Okay, so last week, Becky taught us through the end of chapter 20, where Paul was speaking to the elders at Ephesus. And this week, again, Paul is speaking, but it's way different than last week. Tonight, our text is focused on Paul speaking a defense in chapter 22, verse 30 through 2311. But in order to understand our text, in a way, Luke, the author intended for his audience... Remember, it's uh, Theophilus, Theophilus, right. Um, Or for us today, whether it's for back then or for us today, we have to understand what has happened between last week's lesson in chapter 20 and our text today starting in chapter 22, the last verse, verse 30. So what happened in 21 and 22? Well, this is called context. One of the ways we understand our passage best is to know what has happened before. Um, Last time that mom taught, one of the ways she caught us up in the text we were like skipping, she called them skipping stones to like um, get us caught up to what she was going to um, speak on. Well, tonight I'm uh, the skipping stones we're doing are going to be scenes. So we're going to have four scenes tonight. The first three scenes are the catch up, um, which is 21 in chapters, 21 and 22. And then our last scene is our text today. Scene four will be um, chapter 22, the last verse, verse 30 through 23:11. So last time we learned in 22 that Paul was headed back to Jerusalem. Now, do you remember why? If you look at 2022, it says, um, Paul says this, and, beho- and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. You see, God told him to head back to Jerusalem, just as Paul did. Whenever he went, he had a specific reason for his actions. Now look at 2024. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul is headed back to Jerusalem in obedience to God to preach the gospel. And what we find today, and actually what we see for the rest of the book of Acts, is, Paul is preaching the, Paul's preaching of the gospel will take a different form. It'll be a defense of the gospel. The rest of the book of Acts, chapters 21 through 28, which is a fourth of the book, or 25% of the book of Acts, whichever way you'd like to look at it, um, Paul is going to be giving a defense of the gospel. He defends it in three specific places. First in our text, he'll defend it in Jerusalem. Then he'll defend it in Caesarea to a local seat of government for, um, for Judea. And lastly, he'll defend it in Rome, the center of the empire. And if any of you are like me, you think about that key verse in chapter 1, verse 8, when the Lord gives the Holy Spirit, and we said it's almost like an outline for the book. Right? We'll see Paul is going to give a defense in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Judea and the ends of the earth like so it's just really neat how you see the Lord you know working that at least that was encouraging to me so scene one we're going to look at chapter 21 verses 1 through 16 now I can't read everything because we just don't have time Um, so I'm just going to summarize the first three scenes it begins with Paul on his way back to Jerusalem it's been four years since he was last there and before he goes to Jerusalem he visits two churches one church is a city of Tyre, and one church is a city of Caesarea. And both he is warned not to go to Jerusalem. So the first scene is about two different churches telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Look at 21 verse 4. This is the church at Tyre. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now this is Luke, who is, is one of the cohorts with Paul right here. And Paul leaves the the church at Tyre. He says goodbye even though they strongly urged him not to go. He's going anyway. Now he comes to the church at Caesarea. Look at 21 uh, verses 10 through 12. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus is the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answers them in verses 13 and 14 by saying, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And then in verse 15, Paul and his companions make it to Jerusalem. What the author, Luke, wants you to get from scene one is Paul is going to Jerusalem in obedience to God, despite the risks, despite the warnings. Now, scene two this is Acts 21 uh, 17 through 26. Now, they're in Jerusalem, they're visiting the church there. Paul tells the church all the amazing things of what God has done with the Gentiles in his missionary journeys. And when the church heard of Paul's ministry, verse 20 says, they glorified God. They glorified God and then they asked Paul to do something. And the rest of the scene is focused on the request for Paul. So here's the deal. The Jerusalem church was full of Jewish believers, believers who loved Jesus and at the same time were passionately committed to to their identity as Jews. Protecting Jewish identity was an incredibly hot topic then. Remember that this was a time of cultural tension. There was a threat to Jewish nationalism. The Jews were under Roman rule and had been. And that's not the way God designed it to be. And on top of all that, there is this wicked ruler who just became in power, Felix. So the pastors of the Jerusalem church tell Paul, there are rumors circulating of when you go out on mission, there's rumors that, you're telling Jews not to worry about circumcision and not to worry about the law. These rumors suggest, Paul, that you're telling Jews not to worry about the things the Jews here in Jerusalem are willing to go to war with Rome for, their Jewish identity. So this is what you're going to do, Paul. If you don't, if you don't do this, then you know, we, the Jerusalem church, can't support you. So they asked Paul to disprove the rumors. Prove your continued loyalty to the Jewish law and your Jewish identity. To do this, they asked Paul to do a very public way of obedience to the law, which Paul does. Look at 21 verse 26. So he's doing a Nazarite vow with some other guys. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So you might think, well, what is Paul doing? we aren't under the law anymore we're under grace why is paul doing this well he's doing this for two reasons he loves jewish christians he loves these weaker brothers whose consciences were not allowing them to enjoy their true freedom they had in christ he loves them and he's willing to make an accommodation for them which is exactly what he and the other elders wanted the gentiles to do to lay aside some of their liberties that were offensive to the jews remember that in chapter 15 maybe um so Paul is here just doing what he's asked others to do. Also, So he does it because he loves Jewish Christians. But Paul's also doing this because he loves Jewish unbelievers. For the very people he's to preach the gospel to, um, I'm going to quote 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law So in the second scene, Paul is removing any obstacles that would prevent him from being able to preach the gospel. That's why he agreed to this public display of law-keeping. Alright, and then we have scene 3, which is a, a huge chunk. It's 21, verse 27 through twenty two twenty nine, 29. And this is where Paul is arrested, and he will be arrested for the rest of the book of Acts. It's also where we see Paul's first defense of the gospel. So what's happening in the scene? A bunch of Jews have seen Paul with a guy named Trophimus. They knew Trophimus was a Gentile. So they see Paul in Jerusalem with Trophimus, and they see Paul in the temple. And this group of Jews conclude, we bet Paul took Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple, which was not allowed. That was a capital offense. You could be killed for defiling the temple in that way. So they accused Paul of bringing Trophimus into the temple, which he didn't do. And they also accused Paul of going against the teaching of of their law. Which is ironic because in the previous scene he did this public display of how he is about the law (laughs) and he keeps the law. So, the accusation sends the city into an uproar. Everyone rushes to the temple and Paul is dragged out of the temple and this mob is about to be judge, jury, and executioner with Paul. Then in just the nick of time, or in God's timing, The Roman authorities, they rush in and they break up the mob and they save Paul's life. The mob, who are still crazed with rage, are cheering, away with him, away with him. And at the same time that they're cheering away with him, the Roman authorities are trying to figure out who is this guy and why is this mob mad at him. And it's here, weak, beaten, bloody, bruised Paul asks permission, asks permission to speak to the crowd who tried to kill him. Because in all of this commotion, Paul did not forget the reason he was there. He defends himself, reminding them of what type of Jew he was, that rising star who was zealous for the law and for God and how he became a persecutor of the people uh, and hunted the people of the way. And he tells the crowd, I was just like all of you who are persecuting him at the moment. Then he tells of his conversion, his encounter with the risen Jesus. After that, he tells of his time with Ananias, a devout Jew. And through his time with Ananias, Paul received the revelation about his calling. Next, Paul then reveals that revelation as his mission to the Gentiles. And as soon as the crowd heard Paul mention the word Gentiles, it's like they remembered why they were there. They became enraged again, calling for his death. And the Roman Tribune takes Paul... To be beaten. What we also see is God using Gentiles to protect Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, is being protected by a Gentile from his own countrymen. And now, sorry for all that catching up, it was kind of long. Now we're at our text for tonight, Scene Four, Acts 22:30 through 23:11. And in the mi- what we see here is in the midst of suffering and persecution for the gospel's clarity. The Lord comforts Paul and confirms his path towards Rome. There may be suffering and persecution while proclaiming the gospel of hope, but there will always be comfort from the Lord. And so our theme tonight is preaching the gospel brings suffering, but suffering yields to comfort from the Lord. Preaching the gospel brings suffering, but suffering yields comfort from the Lord. So our text is going to break out down into three parts. There's going to be a question, an answer, And then validation. So the question, um, verse 30 of 22, what is going on? 2230 says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, this is the commander, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the commander was determined to find out, this is a Roman commander, to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. What was going on? What did he do wrong? What are they accusing him of? Now his motivation isn't necessarily about Paul's best interest, but the commander has his own interests in mind here. You see, the Romans had just come within an inch of beating Paul's life in the previous verses, and Paul's a Roman citizen. You see, torture was a common legal defense in the Roman system. But in verse 25 of chapter 22, Paul claimed Roman citizenship. This then stops the Romans in their tracks, for Roman law prohibited the scourging or torture of a Roman citizen, at least until he had been tried and convicted. And to violate these rights was criminal. So the commander, whose men nearly committed a crime by almost beating Paul, was motivated to get to the bottom of this controversy. Now, the commander realized that this commotion about Paul concerned a religious issue, so he decided to order the Sanhedrin to look into the matter. Now the Roman military commander had no right to participate in the Sanhedrin's deliberations, this Roman official was in charge of keeping peace in Jerusalem. Whatever the dispute, it had caused public disorder in what was already a tense and volatile situation, and so he had to make sure matters were properly being dealt with. And this Roman tribune, this commander, tells the chief priest and the Sanhedrin council to meet, to interrogate Paul, to find out the accusations against Paul that caused such a riot. And in 23 verses 1 through 10, we get the answer. And the answer comes, it's the bulk of our text tonight, Mm -hmm. Paul answers the question by way of the resurrection. Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin, I'll read it in a moment, which is about 70 religious leaders, And these religious leaders had their own temple guard. And in the midst of these 70 leaders and their guard, we have this Roman tribune, this commander, and his own deployment of Roman officers. So it's quite a crowd that Paul is going to be speaking to. And remember, this Roman tribune has a personal interest related to Paul, who is in the middle of this stirring controversy. And really, it's all on the account of Jesus. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with the respect of the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So it's an unfavorable start, this um, answering to the question. Immediately a conflict arises between the high priest Ananias and Paul. I've said Ananias earlier, that was the devout Jew. This is a different Ananias, but as I'm writing this, I'm like, oh my word, it's the same name. So don't get confused. This is the high priest who is not a good guy. Paul addresses the council, his brothers, and says, I'm innocent of whatever charge you might bring. I've done what God has called me to do. Now, Paul isn't saying he's perfect in regards to his what he's doing is He's speaking only in regards to his confidence and his calling from God and his faithfulness in carrying out that calling. But the priest, high priest Ananias, will hear nothing from this perceived traitor of the covenant, this traitor to the Jewish people and to their traditions. He views Paul as a blasphemer and orders those near Paul to punch him in the mouth. There are records outside of scripture on this Ananias, descriptions of him being um, violent, uh, shady, confiscating tithes, bribing office, officials, uh, he lost his job as a high priest at one time and then got it back. I mean, he's just hes not a good guy, and he's, but he's violent, powerful, wealthy, and influential, and he, but he's not a godly man. Now Paul responds to the strike by calling the high priest a whitewashed wall. Now, you might recall Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed walls in Matthew 24, 27. John the Baptist called um, Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers in Matthew 3, 7. John the Baptist and Jesus denounced faithless, corrupt Jewish leaders. He speaks, um, Paul speaks justified words of judgment upon the high priest in a manner similar also to Old Testament prophets who spoke up about, against corrupt rulers and priests and prophets. You can see that um, in Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah 23. But in Ezekiel 34, in Ezekiel, God spoke to Jewish leaders who would be judged for, for what they had on the inside was what not they professed on the outside and Paul is basically saying you Ananias are just like them the Jewish leaders and Ezekiel that God called out you are holding me in a courtroom under the alleged course of law and yet you are breaking the law even before you've heard my testimony Paul lashed out at Ananias and accused him of breaking Jewish law which safeguarded the rights of defendants and presumed the innocent until proven guilty remember Paul hasn't even been charged with a crime let alone tried and found guilty well, Ananias orders to to strike Paul. That was in character with the type of man he was, but Paul's retort seems out of character for Paul. He did not lash out when he gave a defense in the last chapter. When he was dragged out of the temple by the Jews, he asked permission to speak. We will see when, when he is in similar circumstances later in the book. He remains respectful to leaders he's speaking to. In fact. He pens in 1 Peter chapter 2 on the subject of submission to authority, and he urges Christians to emulate Christ in this area. Followers of Jesus should not retaliate, for Jesus didn't. When he suffered, Jesus made no threats. So this moment where Paul loses his composure and bursts out in anger, it wasn't self-righteous. No, Paul takes a stand against hypocrisy and unbelief in the Jewish authorities. Then the members of the council were astonished that Paul should speak in such a way to the high priest and says those thoughts to Paul. They're like, watch it, Paul, you're speaking to the high priest. Which would then make Paul remember the words of Exodus twenty eight twenty two. This is where the people are told not to speak evil towards a ruler. And the one who has been lashed out against now stands in repentant mode. Paul apologizes. I'm sorry I was wrong. I did not know he was the high priest. And he quotes that Exodus passage. Now this is a controversial spot with commentators. Some think he's being sarcastic. And that means he would be speaking nasty towards the high priest. But I would urge you that for someone who's just claimed to I have I am innocent, I have I have, you know, I have done well, bef- you know, with what the Lord's charged me, him actually saying, I didn't know this was a high priest, really, it flows with that more. And there's argument, now now when he started back in 21, going to these churches before he got here, I had read it had been four years since he'd been at Jerusalem. I don't know how long it took him from those churches to this time to get there. I read it could have been up to eight years. So there is a chance, especially because this guy has been in and out of office, that he really didn't know who the high priest was at the moment. I've also read that commentators said, well, he had bad eyesight, so he couldn't even see, like, I can't even tell that that's Linda and that's Sue. Like, I can't tell who is who. So, you know, I'm just throwing out there the the ideas, and then you can run with it what you want. But what Paul does next is clever. It's a stroke of genius. He was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I'm quoting what he says in Philippians 3.5 here. He understands the political situation from the inside out. When Paul realizes there's both Sadducees and Pharisees that make up this council, he knows just what to do to diffuse the situation away from him. Now, his diffusing, what he does is a theological grenade he throws into the room. Paul says he's on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, both the Sadducees and Pharisees were leaders of Israel who had to work together, but were vastly different culturally and theologically. Really, the biggest difference they had was their theological view on whether the question of whether there'd be life after death, whether our physical bodies would end up reunited with our spiritual souls. And the Pharisees adamantly said yes, and the Sadducees adamantly said no. So the issue at stake here was the resurrection of the dead, which the Pharisees accepted and the Sadducees rejected. Now was this some crafty ploy used by Paul to divide the groups? Certainly there's wisdom he had, possibly even shrewdness here, but he also used strategy that pointed to the heart of the Christian gospel. It's like Paul is saying, "I'm a Pharisee and I'm charged on and the charge on which I am now being examined concerns the national hope." which depends on its fulfillment in the resurrection of the dead. Paul agreed with the Pharisees that the Jews' national hope depended on a future resurrection. But see, here he is saying that that first stage of the resurrection has been fulfilled with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek here because he doesn't actually mention Jesus' name, but he does say the hope. And you see the essence of what Paul believes, the essence of what Paul's facing opposition for is concerning Jesus. He isn't clear about Jesus when he states he believes in the resurrection of the dead, but we know he believes in the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of the dead, the general resurrection of the dead that the Pharisees believed in, see, that has seen its fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. So here Paul connects them and says, I'm on trial with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And what's that hope or who is the hope? It's Jesus, Jesus, who was resurrected. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of Christian hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope that death will be finally defeated. We have hope we will be fully redeemed. We have hope as a new creation, a new creation is coming. We have hope that everything wrong with the world will be made right. The hope Paul is referring to is Christian hope, Christian resurrection hope which is seeing beyond brokenness, beyond suffering, which he's in the midst of. It's seeing beyond that, beyond what's happening in this present world and into the future as a renewed creation and and being part of God's kingdom. So what was promised back in Genesis after the fall was this hope that Paul is speaking of. And that hope makes the journeying, the suffering worth it. Paul's statement on the hope and the resurrection divides and distracts. The mere mention of the word resurrection sends the Sadducees and Pharisees into his tailspin. Remember how in the previous chapter, as soon as you mentioned Gentile again, the crowds went crazy. Well, as soon as he mentioned resurrection, this crowd goes crazy. They go from being unified as this council who are going to examine Paul, who are, you know, to distracted. At the mere mention of the word resurrection. This is the gr- theological grenade that I referred to that Paul threw in the r- room. Paul's statement results in total confusion in the Sanhedrin. Some scribes of the Pharisees sided and defended Paul saying they find nothing wrong with him. These Pharisees became unwitting instruments for protecting the gospel. The Roman authorities also continued to protect Paul. Because when some of the Pharisees sided with Paul, this triggered further argument, which became so violent that the commander had to rescue Paul for another time and have him brought into safe custody back into the barracks. He is still alive. God's protection is still at work. Which leads us to the third part of our text, the validation, verse 11. And this validation is provided by the Lord himself. I'm going to read verse 11 of 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So the next night, the Lord stands near Paul. Now this is true for every Christian. The Lord is with them. He stands by them. The Lord's presence is there. He's near to the brokenhearted. Every Christian can be assured in times of trouble or loneliness that the Lord is with them. Now this is a vision, or an appearance of Jesus, I don't know, but the resurrected Lord stands near Paul. The risen Savior meets with Paul and says in verse 11, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. The Lord appeared and spoke to Paul to encourage him to tell him and tell him of his next steps. This confirms Paul's own understanding of his calling. Regardless of well-intentioned warnings, pleadings of friends, plots and schemes by the Jews, or the force of the Roman Empire, the Lord has a mission for Paul, and it will be fulfilled. Paul takes courage in the Lord's presence. Paul's actions are validated by the Lord, and Paul is reminded of his future purpose and protection, for he is to testify of Jesus in Rome. So preaching the gospel brings suffering, and suffering yields to comfort from the Lord. I have to read Colossians 1, 24 and 25 because Paul is telling the Colossians about his ministry to the church. And he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now Paul's sufferings that fill up Christ's are not adding anything to their worth, but by extending Christ's suffering to the people they were meant to bless. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they aren't deficient of worth or merit, as though they could not sufficiently cover sins for all believers. What is lacking that Paul is talking about is the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known to the world. They are still a mystery and hidden to most people, and God's intention is that the mystery be revealed and extended to the Gentiles. So the afflictions that Paul is talking about that are lacking in sense, they are not seen and known among the nations, not fully, and they must be carried by ministers of the word. And those ministers of the word fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. So Paul's suffering, sufferings in some way benefited the church. And they benefit us, our church. Paul's example in suffering inspires us to endure well. Paul's willingness to endure whatever is necessary to get the job done enables him to touch more lives. He doesn't quit when the going gets tough. And that should make us think of Jesus. He didn't quit. How many, how many of his disciples said, no, surely you can't die, right? And he's like, no, that's what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Paul's friends were like, no, don't go. And it's because they loved him and they didn't fully understand. Just like Jesus' disciples loved him and didn't fully understand what he needed to do. But he went faithfully and praise the Lord that he did because he needed to get to the cross for us to have that fulfilled hope. So that is our text tonight. Preaching the gospel brings suffering, but suffering yields, yields to comfort from the Lord. Let me close this in prayer.